Welcome to Kehilat Zar Shalom's virtual study. We are committed to restoring the Jewish roots of our faith. And if you enjoy the teachings, please consider supporting this work with your offering and prayers. Just go to the Donate tab at the top of the page. Your gift will be appreciated and put to work furthering the knowledge of the Kingdom of God. We're going to begin a study of the book of Hebrews today. It's kind of a trilogy we've done. We've, we've spoke of the book of Romans. Galatians, and now Hebrews. And I, I'm doing this because I believe these are the three most important books of the Bible for those in the Messianic movement. They address the problems that are important. Romans tells us that we're on the right track in restoring, returning to the Jewish roots of the faith. It shows the inclusion and the place of the Jewish people in the plan of God and that our love for them is not misplaced, but it is actually a reflection of God's love for his people. And it shows the beginnings of where the church went wrong through anti-Semitism, which led to anti-Torah theology. The book of Galatians, because it's mis of its misunderstanding by the church, has led it to be a tool that's most often used against us in our return to the Jewish roots of our faith and a Torah-observant lifestyle. And finally, Hebrews. Because as we're going to see in Hebrews, uh, that it addresses the very problems that we encounter as a movement, as this messianic movement, in our return to the Jewish roots of our faith. The pitfalls of our movement. And so these are three books that I think everyone in the Messianic movement really has to come to grips with. Now the first, now there are some things that we should probably establish first. Before we begin the study, we need to establish the date, the addressee, and the author. The author is really easy. We don't know. <laughs> we probably won't know until the end of the age and Yeshua returns. Theories abound. There are as many theories as there are notable characters in the first, of the first century. But as I said, uh, when all is said and done, no one really knows. Some say Paul, some say Priscilla and Aquila, some say Apollo, some say Luke, Barnabas, others Clement. And I personally opt for, uh, as some others do, for a disciple or a close associate of Paul. And if I had to put a name on it, I'd say someone like Silas might fit the bill. He had an education. He was with the apostles and Paul from the beginning. And uh, not knowing, of course, we can't say for sure, but not knowing the author is troubling because some have used this to discredit the book. And I'm going to speak of that in a moment. But the point is, we don't know who wrote this amazing book. And it is an amazing book. The time of the writing isn't really clear either. Some opt for before the destruction of the temple. Others opt for after the destruction of the temple. And I personally opt for before, and I'll explain why as we go through the book. I think probably 65 to 67, possibly as late as 68. We can put it upper and lower limits on it. I can anyway, because I, I say it was written before the destruction of the temple in 70 common year and the Jewish revolt in 67. And the reason we can assume that is there's no reference to these major, major heartbreaking events for the Jewish people. We would think that someone who places so much emphasis on the temple services as he's going to do and the priestly duties of the temple would mention its loss or the revolt, particularly when the loss of so many lives happened. 
The other thing that leads me to think that it's before the destruction of the temple is when the author speaks about the temple services, he speaks as if they're still going on. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 11 says, Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties again and again. He offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made a footstool because, of one, because by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Notice that when he's writing of the priest's duties, he uses the present tense. Speaking of the priest's duties, when he speaks of Yeshua's sacrifice, it's in the past. So without mention of the revolt, without mention of the destruction of the temple, and this writing in the present tense, I feel we can safely say it's probably written between 65 and 68. And I say 65 because I really don't think it was written by Paul, and I think Paul died in 64. So... If we go to the uh, back of the, if we go to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 22, it says, Brothers, I urge you to bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written you only a short letter. I want you to know that our brother Timothy has been released, and if he arrives soon, I will come with him to see you. Greet all your leaders and all God's people, those from Italy, send you their greetings. Grace be with you all. See, no mention of Paul, but. Whoever it is knows Timothy. And then you have to ask yourself, if not Paul, who? And uh, like I say, again, I would say Silas is a prime candidate. But we'll never know until Yeshua returns and he tells us. Okay, but we have this amazing book here. And it is truly an amazing book. The next thing we should probably figure out is who's it written to? Well, the title kind of gives it away. It says the Hebrews. But what Hebrews? There's Hebrews everywhere in the first century. Curiously, if you do a study uh, on the Greek word for Hebrews, you're going to find that it doesn't even occur in the book of Hebrews, but only in the title to the Hebrews, which uh, was added later. But if we stand back from the book for a moment and we look at it in overview, I think we can find some things that will tell us who it's written to. The book concerns itself with the priesthood, the sacrificial system, the temple, the tabernacle, angels, Melchizedek, Abraham, Moses, the Israelites in the wilderness, the biblical covenants, the men of faith, the Torah, the role of Torah in the new covenant. Those are all topics that would be relevant to believers living in the land of Israel. So right away, at least in my mind, the letter seems to be written to Jews living in the land of Israel, if not Jerusalem itself. Now, if it's written to Jews in the land, we can assume some things about the people that it's being written to. We can base those assumptions on things we learn in the book of Acts. First, they were Torah observant. And we find that in Acts chapter 21 where it says, See, brother, myriads of Jews have believed, all of them zealous for the Torah. Remember, the writer of Hebrews addresses the covenants and the Torah's relationship to those covenants. He addresses the giving of the Torah at Sinai. He doesn't address or discourage Torah observance. And by observance, I mean traditional observance of those living in the land. Acts chapter 2, 3, 4, 5, and 21 all tell us that the believers went up to the temple and participated in the temple services there. The book of Hebrews addresses those services. 
We know from Acts chapter 21 that they made Nazarite vows and went up to the offer temple and offered sacrifices. The book of Hebrews addresses those sacrifices. And so we can be reasonably certain that the audience is Hebraic Jews living in the land of Israel, more than likely Jerusalem. And it's written by a very well-educated Hellenist Jew making maybe Apollos, but more than likely Silas, natural candidates. Okay, well, if you know me and any of my studies, you'll know that I don't spend a lot of time on background because it is what I call boring. So we'll cover some more background as we go through, but we're not going to look at anything more like that today. But I would like to say some things at the onset. This book, like no other in our Bibles, is very controversial in that many people would like to remove it from our Bibles. This is nothing new, because there's nothing new under the sun. They had to really struggle to get it into the canon. And there are a number of reasons, uh, which we'll speak of as we go through the book. But one of the main reasons that is not going to occur in the text that we should speak about at the onset is this fact that we don't know for certain who wrote it. And so you find many Messianic and Hebrew roots teachers that take this same stand and you'll often run into them in their websites. They want to forget the book of Hebrews. The reason is they want to forget the book of Hebrews isn't because of that though. It most often doesn't agree with their theology. And let me say something about this and the Bible in general. We have been given by God the Bible. And God protects his word. I believe that every one of the 66 books of the Bible and every word in the 66 books of the Bible are truth and given by God. I think they're complete. Nothing will ever be added to these 66 books. I don't believe that you can add or take away from these 66 books. And if there's something in one of them that disagrees with your thoughts or your theology, then you need to change your theology and you need to get rid of your stinking thinking. Not only can the book of Hebrews not be removed from the 66 books, it is the clearest revelation of the Messiah and his ministry that we have in the 66 books of the Bible. It solves dilemmas like, is Messiah God, as we're going to see today? Is Messiah the final word, the final authority on Torah? Is he the word made flesh and what does it mean? Exactly who is he and how and should he be worshipped? Can we Count on his redemptive work or is something else required for our salvation. It addresses most of these issues really in the first four verses. And later it expands on these things. This is the word of God and it solves problems that we're going to encounter. It warns us against putting our confidence in the temple, in the Torah, in the priesthood, or anything other than Messiah Yeshua. And because it deals with the Messianic community, Jewish community, we're going to find that it deals with much the same problems that we encounter. Those who deny the deity of Messiah, those who are not sure if Messiah is enough or if we need Torah observance for justification. We see in our movement people drifting away from Messiah into rabbinic Judaism and rabbinic observance of Torah. This book deals with these issues. It gives a warning against something that I warn against all the time. It gives a warning against being carried away by strange teachings. Friends, the internet is filled with strange teachings.
The book is so important to our walks with Yeshua that it's no wonder to me that it suffers at the hands of those who would like to place themselves and other things before the redemptive work of Messiah Yeshua. So understand, please, as we start this, this is Holy Spirit-inspired Word of God. So let's move now into these first four verses today because we're going to see that these things addressed in these first four verses of this amazing book are really kind of an outline for the entire book. The author in the first four verses sets aside everything but the absolute truth. And that is, if you have Messiah, Yeshua, you have it all. Listen, F.F. F. Bruce wrote a commentary on the book of Hebrews and he says this. The story of divine revelation is a story of progression up to the Messiah. But there is no progression beyond him. How true those words are. What we have in our possession and in the life and death of Messiah, what he did for us, is a complete work. Nothing can be added. Nothing needs to be added. If you have Messiah, there is nothing else that you need. Everything led up to the Messiah. He's the final word and example given to us of the plan of God. And if you follow in his footsteps, all of the strange teachings will fall by the wayside. Verse 1 says, In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. Okay, that's the NIV and it's not bad, but it does have one problem. It says at many times. And if you look at the Greek, there's, there's no reference to time. So I put the Young's literal up here. It says in many parts and in many ways, God of old, having spoken to the fathers in the prophets in these last days, did speak to us in a son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he also did make the ages. And so Young's correctly says, in many parts and in many ways. In other words, the revelation of God has been given in a progression of parts, bit by bit, a bit at a time, and in many different ways being spoken of and written through the word and the prophets and by example. As an example, something we're all familiar with. We learn of the Messiah in the third chapter of Genesis. It says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And so we're told that the Messiah will crush the head or take back the authority that was given to the serpent, but in the process, he's going to be struck. Well, by the time we get to the prophet Isaiah, the progression of Revelation speaks of this striking in this way. Isaiah 52 and verse 13 says, See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man, his form marred beyond human likeness, so will he sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were, for what they were not told, they will see, and what they have not heard, they will understand. And so... That's how he was spoken of in the past by the prophets. And now we know that he is, it says he has, spoke, he has spoken to us in a son. 
And so the, in the Gospels, we see this plan that has been given through progressive revelation throughout Scripture played out for us in the death and the resurrection of the Messiah. But not only that, the word has also been given to us by a son, as quoted by an angel in Luke 24. He says, why do you look for the living among the dead? He's not here. He's risen. Remember what he told you while he was still with you in the Galilee. The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men crucified and on the third day be raised again. And then they remembered his word. So the revelation is given in many parts and in many ways. In the last days, he did speak to us through his son. Amen? Not just that, but you remember the whole of the Torah is a shadow. The author is going to tell us in chapter 10 that the whole of the Torah is a shadow. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that the things of the Torah were written down for us by the prophet Moses as examples. Well, one of the examples that the author gives us is the Mount Sinai experience. God speaks to his people and he asks them to hear his voice. The people reject hearing the voice of God after they hear it. They say, we don't want to hear that anymore. And fall under a covenant that's mediated by men. And so we learn the covenant that God wanted was one of a personal relationship with the people of Israel. Deuteronomy chapter 18, we learn a little bit more. He tells us, tells us that that was not what God wanted, but he accepted their desire and yet he's going to send a prophet like Moses and that they must listen to them or they will have to account. Well, then in Jeremiah, we read that God is going to make a new covenant, not like the old where man taught man, but in the new, we will have relationship with him because we'll all know him from the least to the greatest. We see the fulfillment of this plan as God speaks to us in a son. In Matthew chapter 28, it says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. You see, through Yeshua, his son, we have direct contact with the Father. We can now hear his voice. And so understand that the writer is saying that God has spoken to us many ways and given, it, given us this revelation in many parts of his word and of his plan. So now if we put the verse up here again, which I did, I want to focus on some other parts. It says, In many parts and in many ways, God of old, having spoken to the fathers and the prophets, in these last days did speak to us in a son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he did, through whom he did make the ages. Notice that he says, In these last days he's spoken to us in a son. And then he says, through whom he did make the ages. Sounds as if the author believes he's in the last days, right? The fact is, many times the authors of our New Testament speak as if they're in the last days. And Messiah's return is just around the corner, right? At least that's the way we read it. But is it the case? I don't think so. You see, if we look in Jewish thought of the first century, we're going to find that they felt the last days would begin with the coming of Messiah. Messiah would usher in the last days of the Olam Haze, or the present age, and then we would be ushered into the Olam Haba, or the coming age. You know, Paul speaks of the present evil age and the coming age in many places. Well, it's long been Jewish thought 
that the present age would be divided into three 2,000-year segments. And this thought is first recorded for us in the Talmud. We can find it by R. Katina. The first 2,000 years were termed tohu or destruction. And this is because in the first 2,000 years we have the fall of Adam and we have the flood. Then the next 2,000 years were termed Torah or instruction. Because during this period we have the life of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Moses writes down the Torah which is the instruction of God. But then the curious thing is the last 2,000 years were termed the days of Messiah. They expected Messiah to come around the year 4,000 and usher in the days of Messiah. And these were the last days before the Olam Haba, or the coming age. So we might see this reflected in the words of the author and some of the other New Testament writings. I can certainly say this, our Katina was certainly right when he wrote it down, amen? And this might explain why we see it spoken of in this way in our New Covenant Scriptures. But certainly Paul knew that Messiah's return was not imminent. He speaks of the time as the time of the Gentiles because he knew that the gospel had to go out to all the nations. And so while the apostles and the writer of Hebrews speak of the last days and they were essentially correct in their understanding, we know now that 2,000 years have passed. The 2,000 years of the days of Messiah have passed. And so we can reasonably Uh, assume that we're in the last of the last days. Amen? Praise God for that, because if it gets much worse than it is now, like somebody once said, we'll owe Sodom and Gomorrah an apology. He says of this son that he's heir of all things, and I put the word for heir up here. It says, one who receives his allotted possession by right of sonship. He's the legal heir. The legal heir of what? Well, the verse said all. How much is all? All. It means he's the heir of all. Things has been kind of added, but it really means just all. And he says, through whom he made the ages. Some translations will say universe. The Greek word is eon, and I put it up here to show you what it encompasses. It says forever, an unbroken age, a perpetuity of time, eternity, the world, the universe, a period of time, the age. You see, Yeshua is the son, he's the co-creator, the heir of the creation. And the creation encompasses the universe, our world, and all that happens in it, and all that happened in all the ages. He's the one who God who with God made all, to include the ages in the universe. Look at the Hebrew thought in the Targum. Targum of Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1 says, From the beginning with wisdom the memory of the Lord created and perfected the heavens and the earth. The earth was waste and unformed, desolate of man and beast, empty of every cultivation of trees. Darkness was spread over the face of the abyss, and the spirit of mercy from before the Lord was blowing over the surface of the water. That word memra there is an Aramaic word that literally means the word. And so what is being said in the Targum is the memra or the word created all things. That's the same thing John will tell us in the first chapter of his gospel. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and by Him all things were made, created. The same thing the writer of Hebrews is telling us, that through Yeshua, 
the ages in the sense of time, the universe in the sense of vastness and space, and the world in the sense of terra firma, all of this was created by Yeshua and that he is the legal heir of all. And then he says, the sun is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation or impress of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. You have to look up some of these words. First, the word for radiance of God's glory. It says, Christ, Messiah is the is in, Messiah in that he perfectly reflects the majesty of God. The, the writer tells us that Messiah is the reflection of the brightness of the majesty of God. Effulgence is a word which means the radiant splendor of God. Through this word, this word really occurs nowhere else in our New Testament. But if you look in the, in the wisdom of Solomon, the writer uses the word to describe the wisdom, the light of God, the brightness of God. Philo uses it in the same way. So we could assume that the writer is saying that the brightness is the glory of God, the wisdom of God. And Yeshua is the shining forth of that wisdom and that brightness and the glory of God. And the second word that we need to look, for, look at is the word that's used for representation or impress. It's the Greek word character. It means an exact expression, the image of any person or thing, a precise reproduction in every respect. He is the exact expression, the exact image of God in every respect. Think about that. I was in the fellowship hall the other day and there were some people down there discussing whether Yeshua is God. Well, of course, I just said, well, that's too deep for me. I'm, and I went and walked away. <laughs> and I'll tell you why. If we hear what the writer of Hebrews says, then if he's not God and he were standing in front of you and God were standing in front of you, how could you tell? Right? How could you tell? He tells us if you've seen the Father, you've seen him. He's the exact image, the exact expression in every respect. And you know, let me say something. There's nothing in all of God's creation that is the exact image, the exact character and glory of anything else in creation. Everything in creation is unique. And so in the way of all living things, we have nothing really to compare this to. We could compare it to a minted coin. Each one is stamped the same. Or a stamp. Each one is printed the same. But listen to what's being said. It says, he's the image. If you've seen him, you've seen God. But not just that. The word there is where we get our word character from. It's where we get our word character he is the same exact character. He has the same exact character of God. Not just that, he radiates the majesty and the wisdom of God. Is Yeshua God? Well, if he's not, you'll not see anything different about him. If he were standing here, like I said, if they were standing here side by side, you couldn't distinguish them. So, of course, he is the son of God. He's the exacting of God. He is the creator and not just the creator, as the writer says next, but he sustains all things by his powerful word. He's not just the creator, he's the sustainer. He just didn't create and then go sit down and say, well, I have a great life. He sustains each and everything by his powerful word. And you know, the way that that's written, it's a bit confusing because it just says his powerful word. Is the pronoun referring back to God or to Yeshua? Well, the point 
is it makes no difference because if you see one, you see the other. So here's the deal. We don't have words or the mental faculties to understand the relationship between the Father who is unseen, the Spirit who is unseen, and Yeshua who was seen. The same Son who created all things with God, when His creation was lost, He came and rescued us from the present evil age, sustaining us through His Word and rescuing us He sustains us through his word and through his intercession. He has authority over all things. He said he would not leave us, but he speaks to us on a personal level. He's the word of God made flesh, the final authority on the word of God and living a life by the word of God. The redemption of God made a reality. The love of God shone forth in the world. He's one with the Father. He has no earthly father but a mother who was overshadowed by the Spirit of God. He sits at the right hand of God. He's the image and the power and the word and the character of God who's worshipped by men, worshipped by angels. But more than that, he saved me out of this present evil age. So for me, Yeshua is not separable from the Father. And they are one. And that is what the writer of Hebrews is trying to tell us in these first four verses as well. Amen? Amen. Let's bring the worship team up.